Welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this episode we're talking with an expert about venous thromboembolism. Now, venous thrombosis affects more than 30,000 Australians each year and it's responsible for over 5,000 deaths per annum. This is more than the number of Australians who die from motor vehicle accidents annually. VTE is the third leading cause of death amongst hospitalised patients, and patients admitted to hospital are at least 100 times more likely developing a clot compared to being active in the community, a risk that may be assessed by the modified Wells criteria. Tellingly, 60% of all venous thromboembolism occurs within 90 days of hospitalisation and importantly, it's predicted that up to 70% are preventable. It's also estimated that about 50% of patients with an untreated proximal deep vein thrombosis will develop a symptomatic pulmonary embolus within three months, and half of these cases are asymptomatic. However, in 25% of cases, sudden death is the first symptom. And whilst 10% of clots form either in the upper limbs or the mesenteric system, the vast majority of clots, that's 90%, occur in the lower limbs. Although pulmonary emboli may include fat, amniotic fluid may be septic or be formed from contaminants such as talc, we will restrict discussions in this podcast to blood clots and focus on lower limb clots. Thrombosis within the popliteal and aleofemoral venous system is very important in terms of embolic risk, as mentioned above. However, symptomatic distal, that is calf thrombosis, may extend approximately in up to 25% of cases within a week of formation. And it's estimated that up to 40% of cases of symptomatic isolated distal DVTs may have coexistent symptomatic primary emboli. So we shouldn't ignore distal clots either. Now, to review the physiology of clotting, we must remember Verkhoff's triad, including venous stasis, injury to the blood vessel wall, and hypercoagulability. Venous stasis includes post-operative states, CVA, long-haul flights, obesity, venous congestion from heart failure in pregnancy, as well as hyperviscosity from conditions such as polycythemia. Hypercoagulable states may be secondary to medication use, such as oral contraceptives, or be consequent to surgery or malignancy. It's interesting that cancer patients have a six-fold increased risk of venous thromboembolism, reflecting the paraneoplastic syndrome, first described by Trousseau in the 19th century, this may in part have to do with excess tissue factor expression on tumour cells. Sadly, Armand Trousseau himself developed thromboembolism in 1967 after correctly diagnosing himself with fatal gastric cancer. Such are the curious tales of medicine. Other hypercoagulable states include thrombophilia, which may be further classified as inherited or acquired. Inherited thrombophilias include factor V Leiden, discovered in the University of Leiden in the Netherlands in 1994, which creates resistance to activated protein C and is seen in 20-40% to 40 of patients presenting with idiopathic thrombosis. 3-8% to 8 of Caucasians have one mutation. 1 in 5,000 have two mutations with a markedly increased clotting risk. Interestingly, this mutation is absent in Indigenous Australians and East Asians. Other inherited thrombophilias reflect abnormalities within the body's inherent anti-clotting system, including protein C deficiency, which is inherited at a rate of 1 in 2 to 500, protein S deficiency found in about 1 in 500, and antithrombin 3 deficiency found in 1 in 2000. The prothrombin mutation G2210A 
is found in 2 to 4% of the population, leading to excess prothrombin production. Acquired thrombophilias, also referred to as the antiphospholipid syndrome, are due to underlying autoimmune disorders and may account for up to 10 to 20% of deep vein thrombosis cases, one third of strokes under 50 years, as well as many miscarriages. These include lupus anticoagulant present in 36% of general population and 40% of those with SLE, and are five times more common than women. And the word anticoagulant is a misnomer, as this is a procoagulant. Anticardiolipin antibodies and antibodies against the beta-2 glycoprotein reflect antibodies directed against membrane and ionic phospholipids leading to enhanced coagulation. Clearly, it's important to consider both these inherited and acquired disorders in relation to patients presenting with unheralded clots or recurring clots. Interestingly, laboratory testing for heritable thrombophilia among unselected patients is generally not indicated as results do not influence patient management. However, long-term anticoagulation may be warranted in patients with the antiphospholipid syndrome and these syndromes should be considered, therefore, in idiopathic cases of thrombosis, recurrent thrombosis, or in patients with concomitant connective tissue disorders or whether unexplained miscarriages. In quick summary, clotting normally occurs with a primary platelet plug, and then secondary hemostasis occurs in which the extrinsic pathway and intrinsic pathway combine ultimately to produce fibrin strands stabilised by factor 13, which is a transglutaminase. Once the extrinsic pathway sparks the coagulation cascade after exposure of factor 7, tissue factor, tissue factor is also called thromboplastin or factor 3. We know that tissue factor is an integral membrane protein separated from normal blood contact by the endothelium but exposed by perforating injury or vessel wall damage. Now, activated factor 7 leads to the activation of factor 10 and 9 and then with the help of factor 5 and calcium, to the important activation of thrombin, which further assists in priming the intrinsic pathway, which continues to drive the clotting process. Amplification and propagation occurs with the involvement of activated platelets. Quite a complex process indeed. And to prevent uncontrollable clotting, there are ingenious negative feedback loops also initiated by activated thrombin, comprising the antithrombotic pathway and including the production of plasmin from plasminogen as well as protein C and S and antithrombin 3. And note that with the factor 5 laid mutation, there is resistance to protein C, hence enhancing coagulation. This is potentially a huge subject which I can only brush past in this introduction. And the more one considers coagulation in both the normal and pathophysiologic states, the more fascinating the subject becomes. I find it so with all our, of our physiologic processes. Life truly is miraculous. No wonder then that Professor, Associate Professor Sanjeev Chalilal from Monash Health has developed a deep interest and expertise in this subject. Sanjeev completed the Clinical Research Fellowship in Venous Thromboembolism at McMaster University, Ontario, Canada. It's published widely and is a member of the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis, as well as the Australian Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis. Please welcome Sanjeev to the podcast. So Sanjeev Chunalal, uh, thank you so much for joining me on Everyday Medicine. I very much appreciate you taking time out of your busy hematological schedule, Sanjeev, to talk about venous thromboembolism. And I know this is a subject you've specialised in. Sanjeev, can I ask you about your journey into hematology and this specialty in particular? Just before we start talking about clots in a bit more detail, how did you get into this area? 
Yeah, um, thank, thanks for inviting me, Luke. Um, I got into this area, as, as many of us do in medicine, where you see someone, a, a mentor, a role model, who does something really well, and then you sort of get alongside them and you find out what their journey was. So mine started off in, in New Zealand, and I had a very strong clinical mentor there who um, really was Mr. Clot uh, Orpent, and his journey, uh, which I followed in his footsteps, took him to Canada, and I followed him. To, uh, so I, he helped me get to Canada to McMaster University, where they've got a really strong, uh, probably worldwide reputation in their, uh, both in epidemiology, but in management of venous thromboembolic disease. Um, so I spent a few years there, and then made my way back to this this side of the world, and here I am in Melbourne. Um, some so 10, 10, 10, 12 years after coming back from Canada. So, yeah. You're part of the Kiwi Canadian invasion. Oh, thank you for bringing your expertise. I, I am, yes, that's right. <laughs> you. Yeah. you know, I was talking... Kiwi refugee. I was talking about my friend, Dr Strickland, who speaks very highly of you. So thanks so much for being, you know, for bringing all your expertise here. Uh, you know, in regards to venous thromboembolism, which is your one of your sort of special interests, I perhaps hadn't appreciated that... Uh, the, the kind of the the burden that this puts on our health system, and that it, there are more people that die from the complications of venous thromboembolism than die from uh, car accidents. Uh, uh, about five thousand, from what my reading statistics, die each year, and um, the risk is about is it one in a thousand, um, give or take one in a thousand. But that risk perhaps goes up even a hundred times when you're in hospital, and that it's uh, the third leading cause of death amongst hospitalised patients. Um, and I think a lot of the, the clots and then complications of clots to pulmonary emboli could be prevented. So it's a, it's a very big clinical problem. Is, is that your... Yeah, what, what, do you want to make any comments about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I think we probably underestimate the um, case fatality associated with hospital-acquired VTE, partly because of the drop-off in the um, rates of post-mortem. Um, and so, you know, very rarely will we do a postmortem nowadays. But if you look at some of the old postmortem data, the rates of anti-mortem PE was really quite high and un undiagnosed, unexpected. So you're right, it is that silent killer in hospital, and I'm sure we've all missed, you know, these clots along the way. Um, and, term and, and so that's why there's been a very strong focus on prevention. Um, and if you look at the um, hierarchy of risk factors, so you take a pace, you take a patient to surgery, and you know you put all surgery together, the odds ratio for venous thrombosis in surgery is about twenty. Um, then you look at trauma, and it's sort of about you know ten to fifteen, and then immobility or immobilisation. Um, it's about seven, it's uh, odds ratio of seven, and then cancer's an odds ratio of five. And so if you look at the way medical profile, if you look at inpatient hospital prophylaxis to prevent BTE, understandably you can see that the low-hanging fruit was to give prophylaxis to the surgical patients first because those were the patients that were really at high risk. And, and then as we got much better at doing that, we then realised that there were the other groups that needed prophylaxis as well, and that's the, um, the medical patients, uh, the obstetric patients, who are also at risk of BTE, but not as high risk as, say, the surgical patients. 
So is stratify, yeah, I was going to say, do you stratify, just, sorry, stratify those surgical patients into orthopedic versus, say, abdominal? Is, is a, that risk odds ratio of 20, is that much higher for someone who's had a hip or a knee or is it about the same for anyone who's had a colorectal resection? Is it all about the same? So, look, yeah, no, no, look, you're absolutely right. So we sort of lump it together. Um, yeah. And so I think the highest risk group for post-operative PE or DVT is hip fracture surgery. So the little old person that falls over and fractures their hip, you know, it, it, the, sort of the incidence in old old studies and even, um, you know, it's sort of 20 30%. It's very, very high. Mm. And, you know, these are frail, immobile people, often poor renal function, um, and they lie around in hospital for a day or two before they get their surgery. And then, yes. bang, two days later, they've got a big PE and they... Um, and so that, that that's probably the highest risk group in the hospital. That maybe leads us on. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, Sandy, that sort of leads on to that discussion. You know, I was a medical student of the Verco's tribe, the venous stasis, you've got that someone who's had an operation uh, and there's a degree of hyperviscosity uh, and hypercoagulability, uh, I guess, after surgery. So venous stasis, and you've got injury to the vessel, which can happen with, with mm -hmm. orthopedic surgery. And then uh, I mentioned that hypercoagulability, which occurs with surgery, and we see it also with oral contraceptive pill malignancy. And we've got all those genetic um, genetic factors and acquired thrombophilic syndromes, the uh, antiphospholipid syndrome. So can you help us or help me understand a little bit more about that, that hypercoagulability part of that Verco's triad? How do you approach that? Uh, that this is all relatively new, all the looking at protein CNS and anticoagulant 3 and factor 5 and so forth. Can, can you take us through that discussion, how you approach that as a clinician? Sure. Yeah, so look, um, this sounds um, somewhat counterintuitive, but thrombophilia, thrombophilia testing actually doesn't help you manage your patient, mm. which which seems a little bit odd yeah. when we've spent all of this time trying to diagnose all of these conditions, and then you find that the biochemical abnormality or genetic abnormality that you find may not actually influence your decision-making. And I think that's come about because of a lot of really good epidemiological um, research and then um, randomised clinical trials. And so the, the dictate about whether someone needs long-term anticoagulation really is related to the circumstances under which they acquire their clot. So if I take an example, you have a young woman who's on the pill who um, develops a pulmonary embolism. Now, independent of whether she's got factor V Leiden or the prothrombin gene mutation, you would probably certainly treat her for a period of three to six months. You would stop the, the oral contraceptive pill. Whether she has factor V Leiden or prothrombin gene mutation won't really dictate as to whether you continue anticoagulant therapy on her. Now, you, you could in that woman say, well, hang on, what happens if she's got protein C or protein S or antithrombin deficiency? Would that change? And you go, yeah, it definitely will change. You would, you would probably very significantly change what you do in terms of duration. The problem is the yield of um, the, 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 the number of women you would have to screen in this context to pick up the odd woman with protein S or antithrombin deficiency or protein C deficiency where it might really make a difference, you'd have to probably screen a couple of hundred women 
in that context to actually find that one woman. So, you know, in a, if you're talking, looking at an individual level, yes, it would make a difference. But if you're looking at a, you know, a whole cohort of these folks coming through your clinic, you're going to be really screening a lot of people to find that one, one, one person. So it, it becomes a bit of a philosophical discussion a little bit is, you know, how hard do you go looking? Um, and so you do look at some clinical clues like strong family histories and other things like that. Um, but, um, you know, very much so we're guided by the circumstances under which the clot occurs and that often dictates treatment. So if we're going to say we're going to put this person on long-term anticoagulation for argument's sake, then it really doesn't matter what their thrombophilic defect shows yes. within reason because that decision is already made. On the other hand, if you have someone that, say, had, you know, they've, they've fractured their ankle um, and they've got a, a and they come in with a big DBT, um, you know that the natural history of the treatment for that person is if you stop their anticoagulation at three months after they've had, you know, the treatment course of anticoagulation for that, you know, if you follow them up, their risk of getting a recurrent clot is probably about one, one to three percent at the five, five to six year mark. And so you definitely say to yourself, well, as a group, this group does really, really well. We've got a clear risk factor, a clear precipitant. It if you find an abnormality in that person, is it really contributing to what happened to them? Okay. And you'd have to say, well, probably not, actually. Mm -hmm. And so you often you muddy the waters. You cause a lot of um, psychological stress and angst. Mm -hmm. You find something that may have nothing to do with it. And I've seen a lot of people who then the family gets tested, people stop the pill and, you know, all sorts of other things that occur because of this fortuitous or incidental diagnosis of a, yeah. of a defect which maybe has no bearing on, yes. on the patient's outcome whatsoever. Yes, I see. So we're really only talking about those um, inherited thrombophilic syndromes in the setting of someone who's maybe had recurrent DVTs and PEs and the strong family history. Then you say, okay, well, maybe we're going to look a little further, dig deeper, because that now could be a factor that will influence our long-term yeah. decisions, but not otherwise. I'm, I'm with you. So so if someone just, you mentioned the old contraceptive pill, which... It, it's different. It, so there's definitely... An age, so um, if you take um, the odds ratio for the pills, about two to three, um, or, or say two to four, four right. VTE. Yes. But the problem is that the um, the background risk increases with age. So a twenty-year-old woman might have a one in five thousand risk of DVT or PE. You put her on the pill, and that's you know um, say you know one in eight hundred or something. Right. Um, right. A thirty-year-old her background risk of VTE might go down to about one in 1,500 and then yes. put her on yes. the pill. And similarly for a 40-year-old woman or a 50-year-old woman, yes. as her background risk is increasing, the absolute risk is going to increase. Yes. So um, yes. it's a bit of a moving target. Yes, as always in medicine, the, the discussions are complicated, aren't they? So if someone had a thromb an, an inherited thrombophilic syndrome, as discussed, and was wanting to go on their contraceptive pill, would that that wouldn't be an influencing factor. You wouldn't necessarily discourage them. Um, look, they've it's had a complex no, they, discussion. Yeah, they haven't had any yeah. uh, clots at this point in time, but somehow it's been found yeah. out. Yeah. Um, so you, you have to dig around and find out why they got the test. 
Yeah. You know, okay. If it was related to a family member that's had a clot. Yes. Um, then you'd have to look at the circumstances of and that. Have the and then have the conversation about the risks and benefits. I came with you there. What, what about the acquired uh, phospholipid syndromes, which I understand that yes, in yeah. Caucasian studies, 40 to 60% of people presenting with VTE may have a positive uh, uh, positive evidence of those syndromes. Does, does that influence you? Does that change the long-term management? That, yeah, um, the, the the 60% you've quoted, Luke, is probably a bit high. Yeah. I think if you look, yeah, it, I think it's very high. We'd probably, if you take, um, you know, someone, if you take a group of folks in whom the event is unprovoked, what we call the hepatic, so not surgery or trauma or related to malignancy, that would be the group that would have a higher rate of antifossilid Right, athletes. okay, yes. But even in, in, in that group, you know, probably you'd be, I'd be lucky to say, you know, two or three to four percent. I think it's it's not it's not huge. Okay. Um, right. But the but the importance of identifying, yeah, no, that's right. The, the importance of identifying it is that it may have an impact on um, the risk of recurrence and also choice of anticoagulation. Um, and by that I mean um, there's some very very nice studies from the Italians who showed that if you've got someone that's got triple antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, so they've got a, a beta-2 glycoprotein antibody, they've got an anti-cardiolipin antibody, and they've got a lupus anticoagulant, so that, you know, the... 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 Um, the... Uh, the big three. Hattery. Um, and what... Yeah, the hattery. Which, and, which is and not... So an, it's a misnomer, isn't it, Chris? It's not an anticoagulant, the lupus anticoagulant. No, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So you look at those people, if they have a clot, um, and, and the Italians did a really nice study, which is very, very frightening. So they took women who had three antibodies, who'd had a venous thrombotic or an arterial thrombotic event. They um, randomised the, the prevalent also people that were already on warfarin to continue warfarin or go on to a novel anticoagulant, so rivaroxaban. And then they also took new folks that are recently diagnosed and randomised them to rivaroxaban and onto warfarin. And whilst the vast majority of the women coming into this study had venous thrombosis, about 60 65%, and a small proportion had arterial thrombosis, when they followed these women up, it was really, really frightening. So none of the women in either arm got recurrent venous thrombosis, so... The rivaroxaban and the amorphin were very good at preventing recurrent venous thrombosis. But blow me down, the women in the rivaroxaban arm, if they and they had higher rates of thrombosis than the warfarin group, they came back with arterial stuff, mm. which is quite striking. So um, the real wake-up call for us has been for those women and they're predominantly women who have antiphospholipid antibodies, and particularly all three antibodies. They've got a clot. You really need to put them on warfarin rather than these newer medications because uh, warfarin confers very good protection, um, whereas the newer drugs give you good protection against venous disease, but they won't stop the breakthrough arterial stuff. So that's very, very somewhat frightening. Um, and um, are you talking about having Yes, you're talking about having all three uh, antibodies. Yeah, triple, like, triple positive, triple, not not just a single one. If it's just yeah. a single lupus, yeah. whatever. Then that 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 conclusion doesn't apply specifically. So, um, you, 
or yeah, not? We, we're still, yeah, not sure. we're still careful because there's sort of a gradation, you know, like the probably um, the, the, the nastiest one is the lupus anticoagulant, then the beta 2 glycoprotein. So if you had those two, you might be a little bit concerned. Okay. Yeah, sounds like sounds like you know we need suppose in clinical practice we had a patient with such problem we'd want to be seeking specialist hematological advice from someone such as you because that that's a very important point not to miss. It's, so you would check for the anti-phospholipid syndromes in someone who's got an unprovoked, unexplained uh, venous thrombus, but you wouldn't necessarily do the acquired protein CES anthrometry, etc. Yeah, so no, it's a, yeah, no, that's right. For, that, for the reasons right. we discussed. Yeah. Okay, I, I understand. Um, would you mind? Would you mind just explaining to me then your approach? And this is like one on one for you, but your approach. You've got a, a deep vein thrombosis below the knee, uncomplicated, uncomplicated. And you're giving three months of anticoagulation for that case. So. What, what, um, um, this is a bit of a Dor Dor Dorothy Dixon, so thank you for that one. <laughs> um, so, um, so, so the um, the first thing is a is that the right terminology, Dorothy Dixon? I can't remember if that's the right. Dixon, Dixon, yes, the Dixon. Okay, there you go. It's an it's an Aussie colloquialism, which I've found out. Um, so. Um, the term um, baloney, we need to be really, really careful around the terminology because what we really should be talking about is proximal and distal DVT. Okay. And so if we go back to our anatomy, so um, the popliteal vein is a, pop, is a proximal blood vessel, but a portion of the popliteal vein actually anatomically sits below the knee. Mm. So it actually about three to five centimetres below the knee joint. And so the problem is, is when our radiology colleagues say above or below knee DVT, they might falsely. So if they use the term below knee DVT, a lot of people jump to the conclusion that it's a calf vein thrombosis and it's not in the popliteal vein. Mm -hmm. And we see this all the time. So we'll have someone on below knee DVT, pick up the ultrasound report, oops, it's in the popliteal vein. Now the difference is really important. So a, a clot in the popliteal vein, even if it's anatomically below the knee joint, has the same natural history as a clot in a, in a thigh vein or for a PE. In other words, it needs three to six months of anticoagulation. If There's a difference in three, three to six. Which one is it? Is it three or is it six? No, a minimum of three months. Yeah, okay. there's no difference. Right. There's no difference between three and six months. Right. You know, okay. if you, when you stop at three and you stop at six, whatever's going to happen will happen at the same rate. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, whereas if you've got a clot in the, what I call the distal vein, so that's the tibial veins and um, yeah, posterior tibial, anterior, anterior, anterior tibial, tibial. Mm. perineal, and then the muscular veins, those clots actually are much. Um, so anatomically, obviously, quite distinct, but the natural history of thrombosis in those veins is really quite different right. to that if right. it's in the popliteal vein. And so we've recently completed probably one of the largest cohort studies of calf vein or distal deep vein thrombosis um, in the world. Um, sorry to uh, harp on, um, but um, we, um, um, one of our colleagues um, who's, who's gone to New Zealand. Um, we did a, a multi-centre Australian-New Zealand study where we showed that patients with low-risk distal DVT, in other words, they've got a clot in their calf vein, but they're up and about and they're walking around. So they're not lying around in bed. They don't have cancer. They're not pregnant. 
They're not in a plaster of Paris cast. We treated them with anticoagulant, therapeutic anticoagulation for two weeks. We repeated an ultrasound scan, and the reason for the ultrasound scan was just to make sure that the clot hadn't gotten larger and gone into the popliteal vein now, in other words, into tiger country. Yes. And we found that if the clot hadn't gone into the popliteal vein, if the patient's symptoms had completely resolved, we then stopped the anticoagulation and we followed them up to 90 days. From, at the two weeks? From two weeks, yeah, yes. at the two, yeah, two weeks, and then we followed them out to 90 days hmm. to see whether they came back with clots. Now, um, I think we, I can't remember the numbers, but it was a fairly substantial number, about 150 patients. And um, we um, powered the study to show that there would be a low rate of proximal DVT, in other words, something in the popliteal vein. Yes. And in fact, we found that zero out of 150. But we found two, two or three people came back with calf vein thrombosis in that 90-day period. Um, so there was a, a low rate of recurrence and certainly a no rate of recurrence in, in the tiger country proximal system. Okay. Um, and that and that data is probably consistent with um, a couple of randomised studies from the northern hemisphere, um, which suggests so in those people that sort of outpatients with no other risk factors like immobility or cancer or pregnancy, two weeks, careful review, make sure it hasn't extended um, and make sure the symptoms have gone away because if they've still got symptoms and, you know, maybe there's something going on. I mean, yes. it's, you know, yes. good clinical medicine you review. Yes. Yes. It's not quite right, you know, maybe yes. I need to mm. rethink it. Um, then it seems reasonable to stop anticoagulation. Yeah. Right, whereas if they do have a plaster cast or they're still immobile for whatever reason, you'd be inclined to say, okay, well, so, we're just going, the risk is too high, we'll continue with three months. Well, that's a very helpful study. Thank you for doing that. Sorry yeah, about that yeah. brain drain back to New Zealand, though. Uh, where will that guy here? <laughs> that, that person here. Uh, so if, if we have complications, we're calling this you know, a, a pulmonary embolus, um, does that change your length of time for anticoagulation? So if you've got... So if you take someone with a proximal, yeah, proximal DVT, so if you take someone with a distal DVT, the risk of PE is actually quite low compared to, say, someone with a proximal DVT. So if you take someone with a proximal DVT who has no, who's asymptomatic and you do a ventilation perfusion lung scan on them, about 50% of them will have evidence of PE. And a lot of them so are asymptomatic or they're asymptomatic. Most, these are asymptomatic people. Small, right? small clots, uh, not enough to cause any great clinical sequelae. Yeah, no, sometimes they can be large and they're just asymptomatic, which is right. probably they're quite healthy, they're fit, they're young, so they don't even know it. Yeah, the lungs are robust, aren't they? So robust. Yeah, yeah. So that's why, you know, this three-month rule for proximal DVT and pulmonary embolus seems to be the same because we're kind of treating the same disease, okay. even though right. the manifestations and the symptoms of it might be different if you've got a PE versus if you've got a proximal DVT. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, superficial venous thrombophlebitis, does that warrant any great attention? Yeah, look, I used to be quite dismissive of it, but, I've, you know, you do this long enough and you get bitten a few times and then you, yeah. you sit up and you take notice. Um, and I think um, the the ones that I worry about are the ones that are close to either the saphenofemoral junction yes. or yes. the saphenopopliteal junction. In other words, the ones that are about to go into the proximal system. Yes. 
And so if you look at all of the studies in this area, and the studies are pretty poor, um, they don't, they've never really included people that have clots close to those two mm. connections into the DEET system. And I think what that's telling us is that clinicians mm. feel uncomfortable about doing a, a less than full anticoagulation strategy in those people. But they should so all have close. Yeah, so should they have compression ultrasonography then? Is that one thing that you'd yeah. advise? Yeah, okay. Absolutely, and and um, I've been caught out with this time and time again because I've made every mistake under the sun. And so, if you, uh, uh, for those of that are that are classical scholars, I'm certainly not. But the word great saphenous veins. So mm. saphenous in Greek apparently means hidden, and the reason for that is you can't see the thing. You see a little bit of it, but you can't see the rest of it. So the clinical assessment of whether it's getting better or worse is really fraught. If you take 15% of people with a, what looks like a ubuque superficial venous thrombosis, actually 15% will have DVT. So I think it's, um, you know, really tricky. Yes. So I think you, you're better off just scanning them yes. and being certain with yes. what you're dealing with. Another cautionary tale. Is there a place for stockings? Yeah. Do the stockings do anything, Sanjeev? Yeah, yeah. Look, um, you mean when you've got a clot? Yeah, yeah I've often wondered. I guess I should ask when you've got a clot and, when, and just as a prevention. I guess there are two questions yeah. in there. Yeah. So um, I've often wondered whether they do anything, and I haven't been brave enough to do a study or organised no. enough to do a study. Yeah. I think the only thing that it probably helps, it might just help symptomatically, so it provides yeah. a little bit of support. Yes. But whether it really does or not, I don't know. Because no one's actually studied that acutely. I've always thought that the ones that sort of end up in the upper thigh might actually compress the venous channels if anything and contribute to the stasis. But yeah, yeah. Well you might you may well be right, Luke, because I mean if you look at the use of compression stockings in preventing um hospital if we use you know the white tip stockings for prevention mm. of PT in medical patients, they're actually meant to be detrimental. They cause more clots than they prevent. So they could be harmful. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you look at people that have had approximately vague thrombosis and the rationale used to be get them into a stocking to prevent post-thrombotic syndrome in the future. And so, you know, we were doing this from yeah. sort of 2005 onwards and then a, a really smart woman in Canada, um, Susan Kahn, did a really nice study, randomised study, decent size, well-powered, and showed categorically that... Um, uh, you didn't prevent PTS by putting everyone into a stocking. So there you go, turned it on its head 180 degrees. And that's just typical of medicine. We do things for a yeah. while and then someone actually goes... Does it properly. Yeah, yeah it does it yeah. properly. And says, is that question yeah. really been truly answered? Can, can yeah. you can you answer another conundrum for me, the, the role of aspirin? Does aspirin have any benefit at all in preventing venous thrombolism? And in regard to, say, travel and so forth, my understanding was it didn't do that much, but perhaps I'm not in... Up to date with that question. So, look, that's a, that's a fantastic question, um, Luke. Um, so, again, um, a, a groundbreaking Australia, Australasian study showed that aspirin actually has a role in the prevention of venous thrombolysis. So, um, my colleague um, Tim Brighton from um, Sydney um, and John Eichelworm um, uh, got all the ragtag bag of hematologists in Australia and New Zealand, and we banded together 
And so what we did was we took people who are at high risk of recurrent venous thrombating embolism. So this is in about 2004, 2005, before we had these new fandangle drugs. And the conundrum was these people we know are at high risk of venous thrombosis if you stop them. Um, so these are people with idiopathic DVT or PE in whom if you put them on warfarin, they didn't get a clot. If you didn't put them on warfarin, they had about a 30% chance of getting a clot again. And the, but the problem with warfarin, as we all know, that there's a bleeding risk, the patients hated it because they can't drink, they can't have salad, all sorts of things. So there had to be, yeah, there had to be some sort of middle way. So aspirin was thought, well, maybe aspirin would be a middle way whereby it would give you some protection but and, and it would be a lot more palatable. So... Um, the Australasian study, the Aspire study, we randomised about 840 patients to aspirin or no aspirin, and um, we um, didn't find the beneficial effect of aspirin in our study, but we had a pre-planned meta-analysis to combine with the same study design from the Italians. And when we put both studies together, similar study designs, different populations, there was a very strong signal that aspirin prevented recurrent venous thromboembolism. Okay. About a 30% risk reduction. Mm, that is significant. Mm. Yeah, it, no, it's fairly significant. And a um, no increased risk of bleeding. The other thing that we found was it reduced your overall risk of secondary vascular events, so myocardial infarction and mm. stroke. Um, so um, for a while, the standard of care, if you weren't going to warfarinize someone, was to put them onto aspirin. Okay. Um, but now with the new oral anticoagulants that are out, it's so much easier to target. You know, you, you can reliably give them a lower intensity of anticoagulation. The role of aspirin has probably been um, overtaken now. Um, Andrew, I've occasionally had patients who are travelling overseas, long-haul flights, um, and they maybe haven't been so inclined to go and see the local doctor and take advice from someone other than a gastroenterologist and they've asked me, is aspirin going to be particularly helpful? I'm just a bit worried. Now, let's say they don't have a risk, a history of DVT. Can we say, Mark, from based on that study? No. Yeah, look, I, I think the risk, it, so I guess it comes down to what's the absolute risk of getting a clot on long-haul travel? And the absolute risk is really low. Um, the risk relates to duration of travel. Yes. So there's almost a threshold effect. So it doesn't start to really kick in until you get up to around seven or eight hours of travel. Um, it is higher in tall people and in short people. Um, and I think it relates to, for the tall people, they're crammed in behind their yes. seat so they can't yes. move. Yes. And for the short people, their feet don't touch the ground and so the back of the seat cuts into mm -hmm. the back of their mm -hmm. knees and mm -hmm. they've got some venous spaces. Um, but if you look at the absolute risk, it's, it's, it's probably not much more than just your risk of getting it when you're on the ground. Okay. Right. So right. there's not a huge increase in risk. Uh, you know, it might be... You know, the odds ratio might be about, I think the best study, the Dutch study, the odds ratio is about 1.3, 1.6. Yeah. Um, so it's not high, not high at all. So taking taking aspirin really, is, it's it's more... For okay. primary prophylaxis, yeah, I, I think, no. It's more so emotional, we do give it, than a medical Yeah, one. yeah. look, we do, yeah, I think yeah. you're right. 
I have well, I've taken up a lot of your time, Sanjeev, and I'd like to talk so much more, but it's like it's another subject to talk about pregnancy and so forth. But one thing that we use a little bit in gastroenterology is tranexamic acid. And mm -hmm. I understand your peak surgeons will often use tranexamic acid as they're about to do their joints and then I'll put people anticoagulation afterwards. And I'm told tranexamic acid is completely safe. What's your take on this drug? How effective is it really? If it's completely safe, it doesn't seem like it can be that effective. It's almost, yeah, you know, it's almost like a... Counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah. What do you Look, think? I think, um, I mean, tranexamic acid's an amazingly cheap and effective drug. Um, so you're right, we use it in uh, hip and knee arthroplasty where it shows um, a significant reduction in bleeding the need for blood transfusions. But if you look at those studies, they also didn't see an increased risk in VTE as well. Yeah, um, or stroke or myocardial events. Or stroke or myocardial infection. Retinal so, venous events, no. Yeah, I, those are quite rare, so I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure about that specifically. Um, so it's it's pretty safe from a uh, thromboembolic event and from an arterial thrombotic event. Um, we use truckloads of tranexamic acid. What, what's it doing exactly? What, what's it doing in the cascade? It's basically, um, it, uh, it, it binds the lysine residues on uh, the fibrin um, clot and it stops plasmin, plasmin from binding to the fibrin clot and causing fibrinolysis. Okay. okay. Right. Right. So it just increases clot stability yeah. and um, means the clot won't break down. So that's yeah. why it's good if you've got someone that's bleeding, say in a massive transfusion or for a woman that's had a major postpartum hemorrhage and you give her tranexamic acid, you know, cheap, easy drug, it's actually life-saving. So um, uh, fantastic drug. Sandy, thank you for walking us through this difficult subject and making it so accessible. I really appreciate that. Uh, Haematology is especially for a young doctor. Do you have any comments there, a young medical student? Um, Listening to this or a young doctor might say, oh, I'm, I'm impressed by this gentleman. I'm impressed by him. I'd like to do haematology. What, what's, what do you feel about that as a career? Yeah, I, I think when people think about haematology, they think about leukaemia and cancer. Mm. And that's um, and and that definitely is hematology, but there's a whole lot of other things in hematology, and I think that um, uh, you know you just got to look and see that it's uh, hematology is quite a vast area. There are so many. It's like any subspecialty, right? So there's just so many aspects of it. Um, but um, we, we say there's a malignant hematology, there's laboratory hematology, and then there's non-malignant hematology. So the non-malignant sphere is just probably bigger than the malignant sphere, not, not because of anything other than more people will have a non-malignant hematological problem than they come in with a malignant hematological problem. Yes. yes. So... Yeah. And, and your expertise is, is being drawn upon all the time, I think, in you know, around the wards and in clinical medicine. Sanjeev, thank you so much for your expertise and generous time with me. I really do appreciate it. It's been tremendous talking to you. Thank you so thank much. You, Luke. Thank um, you, Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm very great to Associate Professor Sanjeev Chenalal for joining us in the conversation. We've just had about venous thrombomilism. It was a fascinating discussion. I hope you've 
gained some insights as I have in regard to this incredible subject. And during the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. We've got another very interesting guest next week. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation of Centre are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au.